Well, what a great morning it has already been. And we haven't even dipped into the best part when we look at God's Word together. And uh, so I'm excited about that. Some of you are looking at me and wondering, gosh, Todd, you're wearing a tie. <laughs> you don't do that unless there's a special occasion. And you are correct. And the special occasion that I'm celebrating is my parents' 45th wedding anniversary. Are they, they're usually back there hiding in the back somewhere. There they are. Happy anniversary. Well, last week we dipped our toe into the book of Second Peter, and today we're going to dive right in. So just kind of as a reminder of what we talked about last week, I wanted to uh, bring our attention back to the fact that Peter is writing his farewell message. He's well aware of his imminent death. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he is equipping the church for what is to come. As the waves of compromise begin to, to put pressure on the fledgling faith of the early church, Peter recognizes that there is a perfect storm that is brewing. And so his letter is intended to be a wake-up call for these early Christians. But as we talked about last week, and I want to remind you again this morning, Second Peter is equally as relevant for us today. Uh, like the early church, we too live in a tolerant society that is becoming increasingly intolerant of a nonconformist Christianity. Across the globe, we witness how, how persecution puts pressure on the Christian community and, and invites them, in fact, to compromise their beliefs in order to protect their life. The pressure gives false teachers the, the opportunity to have a foothold and, and to convince the church to, to loosen its grip on those core doctrines of its faith. Even today, the grace of God is used to overrule the judgment of God, which allows the church to blend in to a tolerant society. And Peter's warning is the tsunami that is coming. The disastrous effect, literally, on all humanity when the church loses its distinction. The message of the gospel is silenced. And the name of Christ is no longer exalted, exalted in the lives of his people. I believe that this disaster is a real threat, even for the church today. Maybe especially for the church today. And my hope is that as we go through Second Peter together, that we will listen closely to the words that Peter writes so that we too can be encouraged to stand strong in our faith as he encourages the church that he is writing to. Together, let's make sure that we don't make the, the terrible mistake of falsely assuming that this doesn't apply to us today. Because it does. If for no other reason, let me remind you of the words that Paul writes to, to Timothy when he tells him that all Scripture, all Scripture, including what we will read this morning, is inspired by God. It's profitable for, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God can be adequate and equipped for every good work. As we will see this morning, his word is a treasure, an endless treasure from which we gain the wealth of wisdom 
through the grace and peace of God, which is multiplied to us abundantly in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. God, as we open up your word this morning, uh, I, for one, am excited because I know what's coming, and it is good. It is a wealth of richness in you that we need to be reminded of that allows us to accomplish what Peter's plea is, and that is stand firm in your faith in the richness of who you are in Jesus Christ. May we hear it loud and clear this morning. Father, this is our request. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We pray this in your name. Amen. If you will, turn to Second Peter chapter 1 if you're not already there. Second Peter chapter 1. And if you would, uh, just follow along with me as I read verse 1. It says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But what I want you to see is that Peter is a servant leader. His authority as an apostle is based on the humility of his heart. You see, so often people try to establish their authority by their dominance, not on their humility. If they can somehow prove to you that they're, they're bigger or stronger or just in general better than you are, then that false sense of superiority is what gives them the wrong sense of authority. But, but this kind of pride discredits true godly leadership. And what we see in Peter is dramatically different. His authority comes from his humility. He says, as he listed out, he is a bondservant first, and then an apostle of Jesus Christ. And maybe this is because Peter, perhaps more than any of the other disciples, understands the full measure of the grace and forgiveness of Christ. I have to believe that his mind would often go back to the shores of the Sea of Tiberias, where he sat with the resurrected Jesus and listened to him, restore him after having denied him. And then he commissions him as an apostle. He says, shepherd my sheep. And that's what Peter's doing. When he's writing this letter, he is following that command of Jesus. He is shepherding the sheep. Not out of prideful arrogance, but out of humble service. And that heart is revealed so clearly just even in this first verse. Here he describes the first of three attributes that that Peter says that he has in common with all Christians, great and small. It's faith. Faith, which Peter says, is the same kind as ours. It's an interesting description, isn't it? Faith, according to Peter, is our common ground. The word Peter uses here literally means of equal value. It's a word commonly used in their language at that time uh, that they used to describe a foreigner who was given the same privileges of citizenship as someone who was native born. Paul, likely writing to Gentile believers, wants to establish the fact that their faith was equal in value 
as even the apostles. We are co-heirs, is what he's saying. We share a common citizenship in heaven. And while we are here on earth together, we stand together in the common ground of our faith in Jesus Christ. And the common characteristic that he points to of, of that faith that they have in common with all believers is that it's unearned. Even more, undeserved. Peter says, we have received this faith that we have in common by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We received our faith, Peter says. We didn't earn it. It is a faith based on submission, not on accomplishment. Right up front, Peter wants us to understand that no one, not even the apostles, can claim any special privileges or favoritism in the eyes of God because no one deserves His favor. His righteousness is what makes our faith possible because apart from Him, no one is righteous. In fact, no one understands, no one even seeks after God, the Scripture tells us. Unless He initiates His love towards us, The Bible tells us that we remain dead in our trespasses and sins. But here's the good news. He initiated his love towards us. The scripture tells us that God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. Through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. The love of God was displayed in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When we respond to that love and receive that unmerited favor, that gift of salvation, the faith that we share in Jesus Christ is the common ground that we stand on. It's undeserved, it's unearned, and our only right response is to stand together in faith with an attitude of humble gratitude, a heart filled with worship for him who did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And as if that wasn't enough, look at what Peter writes next in verse 2. He said, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Grace and peace are our common provision. As we will see throughout his letter, Paul likes to use this word that we translate knowledge. Here it says that that grace and peace is multiplied to us in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. In the next verse he says that through this same knowledge he tells us we have everything that we need for life and godliness. The word Paul uses, Peter uses here is the word epinosis. It's a word that describes a, a personal knowledge or a deep understanding. 
or make this point because I think it's easy to miss as we read this in our English translation to, to really capture what Peter wanted us to understand. Because the word that Peter chooses to use here is a relationship word. It's a personal knowledge based on a personal experience. This knowledge is not something that you learn from a book. It's not something that you can just simply be educated about. It's an understanding based on a personal experience. It's kind of like going to the Grand Canyon. I know my friend Andy Wilson has been to the Grand Canyon before, so you might approach him one day and say, Hey, Andy, I've heard you've gone to the Grand Canyon before. What was it like? Describe it to me so that I can experience that as well. But no matter how hard he may try, there are no words that Andy could use that would describe what he experienced in a way that we could appreciate it like he did. In fact, it would probably be best for him to just say, I can't describe it. You just have to be there. In the same way, these benefits that Peter describes only come from a personal experience of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You have to be there. You have to know them from your own personal experience to understand the richness that they describe. Because... Peter makes the very bold claim within this context that when you have this personal experience of a personal walk with Jesus Christ, when when you know Him, you have everything that you need for life and godliness. This tells me that that Jesus does not ration His blessings. He, He does not give us only what we earn. He doesn't pay us in installments based on how good our work is. What Peter here is telling us is that God wants you to be complete in Christ. And so in order for that to happen, He gives you everything right up front in the very beginning. Now, even though we have everything we need, the reality is we still need to grow and mature in our relationship with Christ in order to experience the fullness of of those blessings. It's really not all that different than a newborn baby. You see, a baby born healthy has everything it needs for a full experience of life, doesn't it? But that child still needs to grow and, and mature to experience all the possibilities woven by God into the life of that child. Well, the same is true for, for you and I as Christians. You have been reborn into a faith with everything you need to grow in a life that is pleasing to God. Everything. Perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, that being said, let's make sure we understand the qualification that that Peter gives as he writes these words. He says, you have everything. And, And then the qualification pertaining to life and godliness. I think very often we want the first part, the everything piece. But the second part we're not so sure about. And if anything, we would rather it be fill in the blank, right? So we can customize the everything to meet our needs. Everything pertaining to health or to wealth or some other kind of personal prosperity. But that's not what Peter says. Instead, he says, you have everything you need pertaining to life and godliness. 
In other words, you've been given, because of your faith in Jesus Christ, everything you need to grow into a life that is pleasing to God. Now, I don't know this for sure, but there may be some here this morning who hear those words, and to be honest, you're a little bit deflated. (laughs) Kind of like, oh man, (laughs) that kind of sounds like God's blessings in my life are ultimately for His glory. Well, you're exactly right. That is correct. But I also want you to know that, that it is not that unusual to be initially opposed to this idea. There's a part of all of us that, that wants to claim our fair share of the deal. You know, that question of, hey, what's in it for me, right? But I believe as we grow, this becomes less and less the case. Again, if you think about that newborn baby, they begin life, and it's all about them, isn't it? Feed me, bathe me, play with me, hold me, change me. Life centers around them. But as they mature, you expect them to grow and to develop out of some of these things to the point that that they begin to realize, hey, you know what? The world really doesn't revolve around me. Of course, a lot of us parents are praying that our kids come to that conclusion sooner than later. But it's the truth. That's what we desire. As parents, we want to see our sons and daughters mature to the point where they consider the needs of others as actually more important than their own. Selfishness is ultimately a sign of immaturity. Somebody who just needs to grow up. Selflessness, on the other hand, is a sign of of spiritual maturity. Somebody who is growing and maturing in their relationship with the Lord. Just this past week, I was visiting with my parents about a situation that Terry and I have been in where we're trying to care for somebody that we really love. But it's been difficult. Because in our effort to care for this family, we often feel like we're being taken advantage of. You've probably been in similar situations where you were trying to help somebody out, but more often than not, it felt like they were using you. My mom said, you know, I, I know exactly how you feel. In fact, she said, I, I prayed about that a lot. And, and she said, I went to the Lord, and I believe he spoke to my heart. I said, God, I feel like I'm being used. And he said just very clearly, you are. I am using you to draw them to me. Hmm. Her words really struck me. And I knew that as she spoke to him, that was true. But I had to ask myself, why is that so difficult to accept? And and here's the conclusion that I came to, and I'm going to confess this to you, and this is my whole church family, which makes me a little bit uncomfortable. But here's the conclusion I brought, came to. That I feel like there are times that God is using me, and he receives all the glory And my flesh becomes jealous. I want to share in that glory. To get some benefit for the good things that I'm doing. And that is an immature, selfish perspective. And that part of me, I've decided, needs to die. I want to come to a place where my complete sufficiency is in Him. And not the praise or glory that I might receive for what I might do for him. I want to come to a place where 
if his voice of affirmation was the only voice I heard, it would be enough. That's what I think Peter has in mind here. Finding all we need in an abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. For all of us, it's something that we grow in and mature towards over time. But you've got to be there. You've got to become intimately involved in that personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That spiritual maturity is what helps us become increasingly comfortable with the display of His power in our lives in a way that exalts not me, but His glory and His excellence. What's in it for us? Well, well, Peter actually tells us. He says, as we grow in this relationship with Christ, we grow in our experience of His grace and peace abundantly, exceedingly, beyond anything we could ever ask or imagine. And we learn in time that that is all we need. It is everything that we need for life and godliness. Everything. But believe it or not, verse 4, Peter says, there's actually more. Take a look at that with me. Verse 4. It says, For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Divine nature, our common experience and hope. Verse 3 told us that, that God's divine power called us to himself through the person and work of Jesus Christ. In him we have everything that we need to live a life that is pleasing to God. And now we learn that this relationship with Jesus brings with it what Peter calls his precious and magnificent promises. That we might become partakers of the divine nature. Now... We're going to pause here because there's a lot to chew on in that statement alone. But I believe what what Peter means when he talks about being partakers of the divine nature is rooted in our understanding of his precious and magnificent promises. That's really not my idea because as you look at the text, the grammar leads us to that conclusion. Peter says, by them we become partakers. Them points back to those precious and magnificent promises as the means by which we have fellowship with the divine nature. And so a good question is, what are those precious and magnificent promises? So let me ask you, can you think of promises in the New Testament that point us to a unique fellowship that we have with God because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just think about that. There's a lot of them. Let me give you a few. Let's walk through them together. John chapter 14, if you would, turn there. John chapter 14, verse 23. John chapter 14, verse 23. Jesus is speaking, and he answered and said to them, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will, be, we will come to him and make our abode with him. 
Jesus is making a promise here. And in my estimation, it qualifies as a magnificent promise. Because what he says is that we will actually make our abode, our home, in you. Flip over to John chapter 16, verse 7. John chapter 16, verse 7. Again, Jesus speaking. He says, but I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper shall not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Again, another promise from Jesus, and he says, it is actually better for me to to be crucified and and raised again, because then I will send to you a, a helper that will be with all of you simultaneously. That is me in you, making my abode with you. Let's look at one more. Turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Verse 33 is what we'll start with. Acts chapter 2, verse 33. It says, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit... He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. Now verse 38. And Peter said to them, Repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. You will receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. A promise for you and for all who believe from one generation to the next. It's my conviction that the precious and magnificent promises point to the promise of the Holy Spirit. That unique fellowship that we share with the divine nature of God. Made possible through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. Because the text tells us that that we don't become divine. It says that we become partakers of the divine nature. That that word partakers is, is from the root word, which we get our word fellowship. So in no way do we become God, but through the fellowship that we have with the Holy Spirit, made possible by our relationship with Christ, we increasingly possess His qualities as we grow in Him. Again, let's look back to the analogy that we've been talking about with our kids. If we're doing things right in our own life, is it not true that that we want people to see admirable traits in our kids? And maybe say in response to that, you're such a compassionate person, just like your mom. Or, I really admire your integrity. It reminds me of your dad. If we're living a legacy of faith as parents... We want our children to to grow and mature in that same faith. Well, in in a similar way, that's God's desire for us as his children. Paul writes these words to the Corinthians. He says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, and listen to this, are being transformed into the same image. From one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the promise. The Lord who is the Spirit. 
what Paul is saying here is that when we have entered into relationship with Jesus Christ and we experience the, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, that precious and magnificent promise, over time we increasingly display the attributes of our Father in heaven. And here's what I think is, is very important not to miss as we examine this truth. And I, I believe it's what Peter has in mind because of what he says in the very end of verse 4. I want you to think about this. What do we experience because of our fellowship with the Holy Spirit that we did not possess apart from Him? Two things. Victory over sin and victory over death. The Bible tells us that that apart from Christ, we were dead in our trespasses and sins and powerless to break free from the desires of the flesh. Not only that, we were slaves to this corruption both now and for all eternity. 1 John 2.13 says, Do not love the world nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And listen, the world is passing away and all its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Do you see that contrast between the corruptible and the incorruptible? Listen to Ephesians 4.22, where Paul writes, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which, here it is, is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. Here's the point. Apart from Jesus Christ, the master of deceit, Satan himself, is successfully leading you away from the only place where you can truly find life. And he does it by by taking normal desires, desires which in and of themselves are not inherently bad. It, It may be sexual desires or desires for acceptance or desires for success or good health. But then he takes those desires and he perverts them to where they become inordinate desires. And we begin to pursue those for life apart from Christ. It is a path that leads to destruction. It destroys marriages. It destroys families. It destroys churches. It destroys humanity, both now and for all eternity. But when God called you and you turned from deceit in order to follow truth, you entered into an incorruptible life. Though the outer man is still decaying, because we would all agree we're still getting older, right? Every day. The Bible tells us that the inner man is being renewed day by day. And to use the words that we read earlier, being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Through your fellowship with the Holy Spirit, and your submission to His work in your heart. You are growing in a way that increasingly reflects the attributes of Christ in your life. Through this relationship, you experience His grace and peace multiplied to you in abundance. Your life is is made new, and He is the one that receives the glory for His work in your life. 
He, he uses you as you become more and more Christ-like to advance his kingdom on earth. And as you grow spiritually mature, you become increasingly okay with that fact. Victory over sin. Victory over death. New life in Christ. Fellowship with the divine, the Holy Spirit. That precious and magnificent promise of God. Wow. You have it all. You have it all. Everything you need for life and for godliness. Grow in your faith to experience this truth. We're just getting started. In this amazing first four verses, and we've already are out of park, out of the park. Well, as we close up this morning, let, let me encourage you to do something with what we've walked together through together this week. I'm calling it pick a promise, okay? Because we've talked about this morning those precious and magnificent promises of God. And so one of the things that I want you to do is to choose a promise each day of the week and just spend some time thinking about that promise. What I would encourage you to do, some of you have chalkboards. We have one in our home. And so write it up on that chalkboard. Maybe put it on a note card and, and take that note card with you. When you sit down as a family for your evening meal, and I did say when, not if. When you sit down as a family at your evening meal, pull out that promise and talk to your kids about how precious and magnificent it really is. Teach them about the legacy of faith that you desire to live. There's plenty to choose from, okay? So you don't need to follow the ones that I've given you, but I think they're up there. There's seven, okay? You can take some time to write them down. We'll leave them up there. But each day of the week, take one of these promises and just consider it for your life. Share it with your family. And maybe take it to somebody who doesn't know Christ and tell them what he is offering. Amen? Well, let me close us in prayer, and then I want to introduce you to uh, a few folks here this morning. God, uh, wow, what an incredible start to... Uh, such important truths that we are called to stand in. And I pray that uh, in particular this morning we are overwhelmed with the precious and magnificent promises that you have given us so that we have everything, everything that we need to live a life that is pleasing to you. Father, I pray that, that our growth is not stunted or impaired or distracted by the deceitfulness of the enemy, but that we grow strong in our faith so that we can grow to experience the fullness of what you have made possible through our faith in Jesus Christ. And may we live that as a church body in community with one another so that that beacon of light that exalts your name shines bright as the noonday sun. Father, we know that uh, you will come soon. And so may we live that commitment even more fervently as that day draws near. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. And clearly, you love us. We pray this in your name. Amen.